Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. My mother escaped from Vienna to London in 1939, where we spent the war. Despite her fears that England would fall, she gave me hope and the knowledge that God was protecting me. She would have been so pleased with today's program and the work of uh, Absalom and Amnon Weinstein and groups such as Music of Remembrance and the Violins of Hope. Because she came to believe, and I agree with her wholeheartedly, in the power of art and the need to forgive but never forget. And now would you please welcome our distinguished moderator for today, Rabbi Daniel Stein of Congregation B'nai Shalom in Walnut Creek. Thank you. I guess I do this now. Good afternoon, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Rabbi Daniel Stein of Congregation B'nai Shalom in Walnut Creek. I'll be your moderator for today's program called Violins of Hope, A Journey of Heroism, Healing, and Humanity. We also welcome our listening and internet audiences and invite everyone to visit us online at www.commonwealthclub.org. Before we begin today's program, I'd like to note that today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. This year also commemorates the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. It's my honor today to welcome several distinguished guests. Thank you to Patrick Hines, the Deputy Counsel General for Germany and San Francisco, for joining us today. I'd also like to welcome Matan Zamir, Deputy Counsel General for Israel and the Pacific Northwest, who will offer remarks at this time. Thank you, Rabbi um, Daniel, uh, and to all of you. I want to start by saying thank you for all of you. This is incredible to see all these faces on a Monday afternoon here, uh, remembering and talking about the Holocaust. Uh, I want to say a special thank you to Amnon, who is not here, but Avshalom uh, Weinstein, the visionary and creator of this project, Violence of Hope, and to Celia and the Commonwealth Club for hosting us here um, today. Uh, Elie Wiesel said... I decided to devote my life to telling this this story because I felt that having survived, I owe something to the dead. And anyone who does not remember betrays them again. So I will take this opportunity and talk about my grandmother, Rachel Zamir. She's soon to be 98. She lives in Jerusalem for 70 years. She She was born in Stettin who's today's Poland, and back then it was Germany. Uh, She escaped Germany at the age of 17 with her two twin brothers. They were 15. Um, Sorry, I'm also a little bit emotional. Um, They lost every other single member of their family in Auschwitz, except for one cousin who still lives in Haifa. She's 98. She had her two uh, twin younger brothers. One of them, uh, the name is Benny and Hanan. One of them, uh, Benny, died last month. And it's just a symbol of how uh, this generation of um, survivors is, is, um, is living us. And um, as we meet today as part of the international gathering commemorate, commemorating <clears throat> 75 years since the liberation of the Auschwitz death camp by the Red Army soldiers, um, 
And just last week, almost 50 leaders from a long list of countries visited Yad Vashem in Jerusalem doing something similar to what we do today. The Auschwitz death camp represents the darkest moment in the history of humanity. It was a direct result of years of indoctrination of hate, anti-Semitism, and lies. This was ultimately <clears throat> translated into murderous ideology and policy adopted and carried out by Nazi Germany and its collaborators. The death of Benny, my family member, reminds us that very soon there will be no, lo no longer any living eye witnesses to this dark period of our, of, of our history and of our people. A project like Violence of Hope, uh, an event like we, we're doing here today, is the perfect example and symbol and an inspiration for all of us to what we have to do in the generations to come to keep remembering, keep telling the story, and not betraying those who lost their lives, like Elie Wiesel said. Thank you very much. Thank you to Deputy Counsel Zamir for his comments uh, this afternoon. It's now my honor to introduce today's speakers, uh, Avshalom Weinstein, along with his, excuse me, Avshalom Weinstein, along with his father, Amnon, co-founded Violins of Hope as a tribute to the millions of, of millions lost in the Holocaust, including hundreds of Weinstein family members. The Weinsteins have spent decades seeking out and restoring violins that survived the Shoah. Avshalom will be joined today by his wife, violinist Seville Weinstein, who will be accompanying his remarks. Uh, the historian David Fishman has described the cultural artifacts rescued from the Shoah, and particularly the city of Vilna, the ancestral home of the Weinstein family, with the biblical words, embers plucked from the fire. Just as embers have the capacity to burn out or be rekindled, so too do these fragile objects stand in the void. Without loving care, they will be lost to the ravages of time. But in the hands of artists, craftsmen, and musicians, they have the capacity to ignite a fire in our souls. Would you join me, please, in welcoming Avshalon and Seville Weinstein. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Thank you all for coming here in this uh, very special day. Um, so I always try to make my lectures a bit different according to the audience. So it's apparently not really a school class. So we can <laughs> go a little bit different. And um, as Matan said, Elie Wiesel said that if you don't talk about what happened to you and you don't, don't make sure that people remember it's a sin to yourself and to those who died. Unfortunately, there is a vast majority of survivors who simply never spoke. This was their way of dealing. Today, of course, when we hear about veterans coming back home from wars, we always hear, yeah, they, are going, they have PTSD and they go here, they go there. There was, in a way, there is today a way to deal with these things. Maybe not everybody succeeds, but there is a way. But when we are talking about 1945, there was a whole continent full with people who had PTSD and basically no one to take care of them. Not only the survivors, not only the 
people in France and all the occupied countries, also in Germany, in Russia. And nobody took care. And many of the survivors, their way of dealing with that was basically not to talk. My father's parents, who came from Vilna, like it was mentioned, my grandfather had 11 brothers and sisters. Only one of his brothers survived. My grandmother had seven or eight brothers and sisters. Her family name was basically wiped off. We don't know how many people because my grandparents simply didn't say one word. Nothing. They had uh, letters of people begging their family members, begging them to try and help them get certificates to come to Israel in 1938-39 when it was, let's say, still possible. But of course, later on, all communication was cut. We don't know when and where they were killed. We simply know they were all killed. And my grandparents, they, their way of dealing with that was simply not to talk. That was it. They never spoke to my father or to his sister, my aunt, about it. Of course, never to ask the kids. Um, unlike my mother's family, which we will reach in the end, uh, when I grew up as a child, when we would go to my uh, mother's uh, mother, my grandmother, and our bedtime stories were the story from the wall. But her story is very different. And uh, like I said, we'll talk about it in a few minutes. So, Violins of Hope is a way to try and talk about an era that we think we understand, we want to understand. Too many people forget, and many people don't want to deal with. Now, you're, let's say, not in school anymore, so... It's not in schools they maybe talk about statistics, how many people died, what was going on, these battles, that battles, the death camps and everything. But the kids, they don't really understand that. When we come with an instrument, when we come with a story of a person going from here to there, what was happening to him with his instrument, if he survived, if he didn't, maybe it gives them a different perspective. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I'm not in school anymore. I'm very happy for that. <laughs> um, but maybe it's going to change something. Now, the Nazis, they used music. They used music and abused music in so many different ways, which it's basically countless. Every camp had an orchestra. Auschwitz... When we are talking about Auschwitz, basically Auschwitz is a series of many, many camps. I think there were over 40 camps in total which were named Auschwitz. There was Auschwitz I, the one, the main camp. Birkenau was basically Auschwitz II, and then there were lots of other sub-camps. In Auschwitz I, for example, there was in a certain time a full symphonic orchestra, 120 people. It didn't mean that the same people who had the rehearsal and concert in the morning were the same people in the evening because... Unfortunately, many, of course, died during the day. Now, being a musician basically gave a small edge. Why? Those orchestras, their main work was to play in the morning when the inmates had to go out to work and in the evening when the inmates had to come back to the camp. So they would be the last one to go out and the first to come back because the Nazis needed them 
they might got a better a better food maybe a bit of better clothing lighter works so many of them survived now still of course in the end like i said because many of them never spoke we have no idea what happened to them we don't have the stories of course not the instruments we have today in the collection about 87 instruments one of them you'll hear now others you can see in the exhibition and here in the concerts that we are having here for the next uh six weeks give or take and i'm going to mention one one story from auschwitz it's the story of alma rose alma was born and raised in a very known family of musicians her father arnold rose was the concertmaster of the vienna philharmonic for many years and her uncle was a very famous conductor uh, composer gustav mahler okay everybody knows gustav mahler of course <laughs> So uh both the Maler and the Rose families both converted to be Christians many years before the war and still in 1938 after Nazis Germany took over Austria Arnold was basically thrown out from the orchestra he took his family and they moved to London but Alma she had a small orchestra playing light valses and light music women orchestra in Germany she wanted to go back to this life to play these concerts to have fun she she saw herself basically as christian she went back to europe um and then of course when the war started unfortunately she was immediately caught by the nazis and later on sent to birkenau in birkenau she was put as the head of the women orchestra now the nazis knew exactly who she was they knew her legacy her father her uncle everything She was let's say treated very well in a way as much as can you be treated well in a concentration camp the only person that we know until today who was called in her private name was Alma they used to call her Frau Rose or Frau Alma Mrs Alma because she was such a celebrity she managed to get conditions for the women orchestra which was basically unheard unheard of the only barracks which had its own toilet was the women orchestra barrack in birkenau no other barrack anywhere else in any camp had its own toilet now alma believed that if they will play well and work hard the nazis will keep them alive because they needed music so the women had to practice every day learn new pieces all the time and work hard but she was right there is even a very famous story that one of her players got very sick one day she had typhus she was sent to the um clinic now usually the clinic meant a one way ticket you go in you never go out and the woman was lying down on the bed and famous dr mengele was taking his daily tour and he sees this woman lying down and he asks the nurse he says why is she still here why wasn't she sent basically to the gas chambers and the nurse simply said well she belongs to the orchestra he walked away and the women lived they were that important alma herself unfortunately did not survive but uh, she died about 2 or 3 months before the liberation we don't know exactly when why and what there are lots of theories i'm not going to go into that 
um, but only two or three women from all the women who played in the orchestra did not survive. The rest survived. I met few of them. Um, some of them are still alive. Few even men went on playing, but the vast majority never touched a musical <coughs> instrument. Now we will hear a short piece by Bach. The only recording which is existing from Alma Rose is her playing the double Bach with her father a few years before the war. And I'll tell you the history of this violin in a few minutes. Hello to everyone. Uh, I will be performing a solo sonata of Bach, Adagio, the first moment of the solo sonata for violin. Unfortunately, we cannot perform the double concerto, but um, I would... I would like to share a small <clears throat> memory of this summer when we went to Auschwitz and we performed their uh, double Bach concerto second movement with Raphael Wolfisch and Jehat Ashke. And when we started performing, a great storm started and um, our notes started flying. So Avshi had to go on the ground and grab all the three possible stands and try us to help. And um, some pieces of the notes, they just flew and they just vanished. So for us, it was so amazing, you know. And we played it in memory of Amarose, who saved uh, Raphael Wolfish's mother, actually. She was playing in her orchestra. She was playing cello. And just... I would love you to think how people survived out of this violence. Violence they 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 could actually only only make it out because of they were playing some musical instruments, and besides they were music lovers. They wanted to hold on life, and now we have this privilege thanks to Avshalom and his father Amnon and my beloved mother-in-law Asaela. Thank you very much for being here today and sharing this moment.
the story behind this violin is uh, rather simple, but has a very good ending as well. It belonged to a person named Leon Sawicki, who was born as a Jewish person in Poland before the war. When the war started, he managed to get fake papers showing him basically as Christian, and this is why he didn't go into the ghettos. He played in street corners and small coffee shops, and this is how he managed to earn a little bit of extra money, extra food, and basically survive. Now let's see, Matan, if you know the next name, because I tell you honestly, when I grew up, I did not know this name, but all of you would know the name. When the war finished, um, Leon Sawicki was invited here to the United States on the personal invitation of Dr. Jonas Salk. <coughs> okay, you see. You know. Do you know? All right. So, Jonas Salk, I did not know Thank as you. well. <laughs> Jonas Salk, of course, is the guy who made the polio vaccination. They worked together for many years, and Leon Sawicki stayed here in the United States, raised his family, and we got this instrument from his son, a um, few years ago, we had a big project with APEC, the Jewish lobbyist, and um, he was uh, his son was working for APEC, and this is how he came to us and told us his father's story, and even was generous enough to give us the violin. So I think we will go to the questions a bit, and I promise to give my answers very long and uh, <laughs> go to other topics as well. Uh, before I do that, I have to give the radio reminder... We'd like to remind our listening and internet audiences that this is a Commonwealth Club program called Violins of Hope, a journey of heroism, healing, and humanity. Our speaker is Avshalom Weinstein, co-founder of Violins of Hope, and I'm Rabbi Daniel Stein, your moderator for today. Um, first of all, it's just very deeply moving to, uh, to hear that and just leave some space for, I think, the emotions we're all feeling after that beautiful performance. Um, I think we'd all love to know a little bit more about your family's connection with these violins, uh, in particular how, um, how your father started working with them. And there's an amazing moment described in, uh, in the book about Violins of Hope that, that says that your father first encountered one of these violins and he wasn't quite prepared to work with it. And about 10 years passed before he was able to take up the project. More than 10. So I'm, I'm curious what happened in those intervening years that allowed him to really start working with these instruments. So uh, part of the answer of, to your question lies in the name which is signed here on this bow. It's signed C. Daniel Schmidt Dresden. Dresden, everybody knows this is basically Germany. Um, but the early, early beginning is with my grandfather, of course. After the war in 1945, when survivors came to Israel, telling about all the atrocities which were done during the war, there was a very strong band in Israel on everything German. They wouldn't even mention the name Germany in the radio. Now, many of the founding members of the Palestine Orchestra, which later became the Israeli Philharmonic, many of them came from Germany and Austria, and they had great German-made instruments. But they didn't want them anymore. They went to my grandfather and told him something very simple. Either you're going to buy it, or we're simply going to destroy it. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to Israel. Probably it wasn't in the 30s. Tel Aviv in the 1930s was basically a small hole in the desert. You would see more camels in the streets than cars. And uh, still, 
my grandfather, he bought all those instruments that he could. And he had a great collection. I'm telling you really great stuff. Beautiful German-made instruments. But because nobody wants to buy anything German in Israel, it's basically worthless. So it stayed. It stayed for many, many years. Until this guy, Daniel Schmidt, the bow maker, until he came to, be in a, to do his apprenticeship with my father in 1991. Now, 91, of course, it's already, Germany is already united. It's after the fall of the Berlin Wall. But uh, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, in the Soviet Union, Jewish Holocaust basically did not exist. They wouldn't teach it, they wouldn't mention it, they wouldn't talk about it. Even in most of the uh, concentration camps, the signs will say, here died so-and-so Soviet citizens. Never if they were Jewish, Polish, Russian, gypsies, whatever. Everybody was a Soviet citizen. And when Daniel Schmidt, when he came to Israel in the beginning of the 90s, you had still many survivors. He met many survivors, some of them actually coming from Dresden. And uh, he saw this collection that my father had. And he asked my father, he said, how come that in Israel, in the 30s, 40s, you could get such great instruments? And after he learned about it, he basically begged my father for a few years to give a lecture about those instruments and how they actually arrived to Israel. My father, in 1999, he gave this lecture in Germany, in Dresden, to the German Violin and Bow Making Association. And after that, he spoke on a radio show. And this was a rather a very, this was, let's say, post-war Facebook. What was the radio show? People would go on air saying, I'm coming from this and that place. I'm looking for my mother, for my father, for my brother, for whatever. If anyone knows, please give me a call. And they would leave a phone number or an address. And this is how people man manage to learn what happened to their families and sometimes also to be reunited. Now, of course, this talk was in 1999, a little bit later after the war, but my father spoke and he said, if people know about survivors who played and maybe by chance they still have the instruments, we would love to know. And uh, slowly, slowly we started getting more and more instruments, more and more stories. As I mentioned today, we, had, we have 87 instruments. It's still growing. Um, I got two instruments very recently in Louisville. Uh, one of an American soldier who left Germany with his family in 1937 or 8, age 17. He joined the American forces. And they have a beautiful photo album that he took from basically day one in... Um, basic training all the way to Europe during the war in Europe and coming back to United States. And he was even, even kind enough to write next to every single photo where it was taken, when and who are in the photo. So it's a beautiful document. You can see it in the exhibition here, a few pages from that. And um, we're still getting instruments. And as I mentioned, think about it. There were thousands of camps Almost, almost each one, if not each one, had an orchestra. So there are many, many more instruments to be found. Unfortunately, many of them are most probably lost. But we are still getting here and there more and more stories. So an audience member asks, um, my uncle had to leave his violin behind in Vienna. 
how do you establish the provenance of the instruments that you find? Is it mostly through family stories and narratives? Do you encounter instruments that uh, you have to work on to establish a kind of provenance? Well, if you bring me a violin, I can tell you if this is old, where and when it was made, approximately, maybe even by whom. Um, I'm not the biggest expert in the world. I'm not even pretending to be. But in the end, we don't have the time money and effort to go and do a research, a very deep research on every single instrument we get. Jay Grimes in his book did a beautiful research. There was a beautiful book which was written in Germany about one of the instruments uh, from Dachau that they did a very beautiful research. But yes, in the end, we have to rely on the family. If they'll bring me a new violin, I'll probably know saying this. Yeah, it might be a beautiful story, but not with this instrument. People try it's okay, but uh. so I'm. I'm curious to know also a little bit about the impact of this work on your family, uh, just to, sort of emotionally to be engaged every day uh, with the Holocaust, especially as a young person who's engaged with these stories. I'm curious about your sense of personal meaning and maybe sense of mission around the work that you're doing. So, like. Like I mentioned, you know, I mean, it's a very big difference between me and my father, not only because of the age thing, because also the way we were raised. My father was raised basically with no family. Uh, Holidays would be my father, my aunt, and their parents. That was it. That's the family. They never spoke to him about the war, about their own family. And when I grew up... um, Of course, I had grandparents, something which basically did not exist in Israel after the war. And my mother's side of the story, um, you might not all of you seen one of the latest James Bond movies, right? Anyone here saw a James Bond movie lately? Not the ones with Sean Connery, the one later. (laughs) So you have uh, Sean Connery, uh, Sean Connery, sorry. Then uh, James Bond is being played by uh, Daniel Craig. All right, so Daniel Craig, Liv Schreiber, and Jamie Bell played in a movie in 2008 called Defiance. Any of you seen Defiance? All right, so that's the story of my grandfather and his two brothers. My mother's father was a Saul Bielski, <clears throat> one of the three, basically four brothers. Archik, the small boy, is still alive, by the way. Um, and uh, my grandmother... Met my grand. They knew each other from before the war. Uh, my grandmother had eleven brothers and sisters. She was the eleventh. My father the same. And because they were the only Jewish family in each village, few of my cousins, my uncles, and my aunts married between the families. Many of them are here in the United States today. And uh, when the war started, my grandfather and his brothers, rather than going to the ghettos, decided they will go and live in the woods. Now, my grandfather knew my grandmother. He was in love with her many years before the war. But she was a very young, spoiled girl, and she didn't want to marry a village boy, so she never said yes. And when the war started, she made a deal with my grandfather. If he's going to save her and her parents, she's going to marry him. And he did. So this is why my mother actually had grandparents. And um, they lived in the woods for three years, hunted for a very long time, basically all the time, by the Nazis. My grandfather and his brothers had a very high uh, bounty on their heads for the whole war. 
In the end, in July 1944, uh, they were rescued by the Russian army, the Red Army. My grandfather was forced into the Russian army and later on killed, somewhere probably in Germany or Poland, we simply don't know. And my grandmother, who was already pregnant with my mother, decided that living in the heaven, which was the Soviet Union, was not exactly what she wants. So she took whatever she could, running to basically Western Germany. Uh, she was in a DP camp there for about one and a half years before actually immigrating to Israel, where she stayed for the rest of her life. So for me, I was growing up on these stories. I'm a third generation. It's a little bit, let's say, further away. When I get an instrument like that to work on, I deal with old instruments all my life. I know to restore them. I know the mechanical work is very much the same. Of course, when you have an instrument that you really know the history, and it's a history which is also close to me because it's not only because it's part of the Jewish um, history and legacy, it's also part of a topic which is very close to me it's different. Not the mechanical work, of course, but the actual feeling. For my father, it's much more different because he never grew up talking about it. For him, working on it is actually talking about it. Mm. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So let's take a short break with the music and then we do a few more questions. Yeah, yeah? Uh, this summer, my mother-in-law, Asaela, is just there with our two kids. So she's time to time listening to us. We had the uh, privilege of going to Belarus with my sister-in-law, Merav, my mom. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we we were in the Nariborki forest and all around the area and seeing hundreds of people trying to unite and to find any information about their um, siblings, about their grand-grandparents or great-uncles, you know, trying to reach one to another and seeing their names. And, um, well, as an outsider who joined the Weinstein family later on, uh, and as also as a musician and now a mother of two kids, I find it really very important, and I appreciate their all efforts as long as it looks like you know like there are so, so many things to be done taking 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 care of the instruments, uh, checking out if there are this accuracy of the stories and everything around it. but it's such a great ambition, and thank you very much. To, to make it happen. It's not easy all the time. It's, it, it really gives and takes lots of things from them. But um, I'm so glad that this project is going on. And thank you very much to you all for being here and, and to be able to share this moment with us. 
Turkish. I was born in Bulgaria, and uh, we immigrated to Turkey uh, in '89. And today, I would love to play you a Turkish tune, an anonymous tune. When we were uh, choosing some what to play on each different instruments with Amnon, I would play him some also traditional folk tunes from Turkey, so that he was like, oh, "This is also Jewish. Oh, this is also Jewish." You know. Like, We are all, met, of course, in the same neighborhood. We don't know where is it, whether is it Jewish, Turkish, Armenian, or you know, from even from the Balkans. But it's called Sergelin. Thank you. Um, an audience member uh, would like to know a little bit more about the function of music in uh, concentration camps and in, uh, in the death camps. They, they find it unusual that there are music in those settings, and they're curious to know if the music served a function for the prisoners or for the guards. So the music played function for everything. Like I mentioned, it was used to march the people in and out from the camps, It was also used to amuse uh, the Nazi guards. I have, uh, we've done a big project in uh, Sarasota, Florida a few years ago. And after one of the concerts, a survivor came to me and he told me, he said, for him to be in that concert that evening was basically a torture. Because he said that when he was a prisoner in one of the camps, the Nazi guard wanted to hear this or that piece of music. So they would make all the camp prisoners stand for hours. Of course, rain, snow, for them it didn't matter. The prisoners never had enough warm clothes, shoes, food, and they had to stand for hours. 
you move, you get bitten, you fall down, you get shot. For him, music was torture. Music was also used to, the, to amuse the guards at night. Um, everybody here knows Schindler, of course, right? So uh, two people who worked for Schindler in his working force were two brothers named Rosner. Avraham Rosner was a double bass player. I don't remember his uh, brother's name, who was a very good pianist. And they were made by the Nazi guards play jazz music for them at night. Of course, jazz was banned in Nazi Germany because they looked on it as an inferior type of music. But the Nazi guard loved jazz. And at night for their parties, what did they want to hear? Jazz music. So they used that. And um, there are stories about people who arrived to the camps, sometimes after a week or two weeks, in the cattle trains. And the first thing they would hear when the train would open, music. They would think, oh, okay, well, you know, come on. there is a quartet here or whatever playing music. How bad can it be? Of course, it took them a few minutes to understand how bad it could be. But this was, in a way, a deception <coughs> to try and lure them easier into the trap. They used it in so many different ways. I mean, there was kind of um, some of the Nazi uh, commanders, they wanted the orchestras all the time to bring new music and new pieces because they saw it like, you know, you see, we are very cultural people. We have an orchestra playing for us or whatever. No so. music, by the way, no music to read. Yeah, they had, they had to write their own music. They were not allowed to play any German composers, but sometimes a German god would come and say, okay, you know, I know this and that song. He would sing two, three bars, and the orchestra had to basically write the whole score. <laughs> but they had to do it. Now, in the ghettos, it was a bit different. In the ghettos, it was for their own um, all cultural thing. I mean, in Vilna Ghetto, for example, we have a book about this thick, which has almost every day they had concerts and theaters and other things that they did for their own selves, for the uh, ghetto members. There is a story that one of the ghettos, they wanted to get a piano. So they found a piano in the city, took it apart, smuggled all the pieces into the ghetto, <laughs> reassembled it inside the ghetto, now we have a piano. So um, several audience members have asked about um, the, the general conditions of the violin. So this is probably both for you and for Seville. So the first question is, do work on these kinds of instruments present any particular technical challenges in terms of the restoration? And then for somebody who is performing on these instruments, are there technical limitations or challenges that emerge from playing an instrument um, in, this, in the collection? Okay, so let's make it very clear. I was never a good violinist. <laughs> I finished playing when I was about 13 or 14 years old. I think it was better for me, for my parents, and for the violin. <laughs> also for my sister and brother. Um, but as a technical challenge, there are a few things which are, let's say, different when you take a violin which was played outside in rain and snow than a regular instrument. If you take this violin or basically any other violin, put it in the middle of the street here, run it down with the bus, I can fix it. Is it going to sound great? Probably not. Are you going to notice it? Most probably. But it is repairable. 
Okay, so even if we get, and we did get instruments in basically a bag of plastic with a, a puzzle of something which resembles a violin, it is repairable. It can take up to one or two, maybe even three years, but it is repairable. The thing is that some of those instruments, after being played outside, the varnish here on the top mainly was basically washed away by the rain and snow. If you have a chance to see in the, the instruments which we are playing, which we are giving to play, of course, they are all completely finished and restored. But in the exhibition here, there is one violin that we decided to leave as it is. And you can really clearly see that the only thing which was left was what we put underneath the varnish, like the ground uh, color and the basic, basic color of the instrument. No varnish. The violin is in very poor condition. It, was, it had terrible repairs done on it just so it can continue playing one more day. Now is technical challenge. <laughs> That's about my wife. I mean, I'm, I'm not even going to try and answer. Thank you. Of course, the, all the instruments have different measurements, different size uh, of uh, neck and different height of bridge and possibly is possible to be played. They were restored by Amnon. But of course, I mean, it's not something we play every day. Still, every time I, I take an instrument, just even to start to play, I, I always cry. And during performance also, I... All these uh, memories and all what we hear, what people share, what we experience, they all go through. And it's another difficulty to, to deal with. But uh, thanks to Amnon, it's very, very playable. And as much as, of course, different measurements and sometimes one tune might, might not ring as a regular all everyday played violin. But uh, they are all um, in a possibly played condition for us to perform. So in your opening comments, you mentioned that um, I suppose you and I were among the last generation of people who will know survivors uh, directly and have heard survivor testimony directly, and that increasingly physical objects are going to be playing a role in telling the story uh, of the Holocaust. And I'm curious about this kind of responsibility that these objects bring with them uh, in terms of telling the story for you? Well, we have a violin in our workshop from 1530. So almost 500 years old, still playable. The vast majority of the instruments that we have in the collection of violins of hope are about 120 years, give or take. So they still have a good run in front of them, most probably longer than mine. Um, so, of course, in the end... In a few years' time, unfortunately, the last survivors will die. With them, their testimonies as an eyewitness. We have, of course, books and films and other um, materials and stuff that you can see, but the actual people will not be there. And maybe those instruments, by actually being there, being played there by those people survivors or unfortunately those who passed away uh, during the war, they might be the one who bear the witness. Now, you cannot take, um, we have, there is a beautiful, uh, there are many beautiful Holocaust museums. And also here in the States, 
There are a few states which it's mandatory for the kids to go and visit a Holocaust museum during this or that age. But those instruments, it's not only to see, it's also to hear. Is that a stronger effect or not? You have to tell me. No, I'm not the one to say. Um, but it's another way to try and, and, and deal with it and try to talk about it and try to make sure that people remember. So uh, our experience in, in the Bay uh, has been that there's been an overwhelming response to these instruments. For the people listening on the radio, we're in a room today filled with about 120 people. I know this evening there's a performance where there'll be a, in a Holocaust memorial uh, observance with about 1,200 people. I wonder if, if that type of um, response has been typical for your experience with these instruments. So let me give and you an, um, what happened in Berlin when we've done a concert there just five years, exactly five years ago on the day, actually. Um, we were approached by the Berlin Philharmonic to do a concert for the 70th anniversary of the release of Auschwitz by uh, your former boss, Steinmeier, who is today the president of Germany, he took over that concert. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to Berlin or know the Berlin Philharmonic. Berlin Philharmonic basically has two halls. One is about 2,400 people and the other one about 1,200. <coughs> Sorry. Now, the orchestra thought that they won't be able to fill up the big hall, so they took the small hall and there was in the big hall there was another concert the same day. Now, they saw that they reached 1,200 people, and they said, you know what, maybe we can switch. But the other hall just sold just over 1,200, so they couldn't. They had 10,000 people asking for tickets who couldn't get in. Now, you can say many things, but 10,000 people who want to come into a concert, I would call, consider it not that bad. <laughs> uh, but what, what do you think is behind that energy? What do you think about... I honestly don't know. It's something that you have to ask the people here. Why did, yeah. you, why did you come here today? Is it to hear me? Probably not. Is it to hear my wife? I would say yes. Um, <laughs> is it to hear these instruments and um, the music? I don't know. Listen, it's, a, it's another way. Music has its own language. Everybody understands music can be pop, rock, jazz, classic, whatever it is. People understand music. And hearing those instruments from those times and with these stories, it's a different experience. I can guarantee you that if the Berlin Philharmonic would have played the, that concert on their own instrument, mm -hmm. most probably it would sound better. Because the price of one of their instruments is about, uh, give or take, 15 times the whole collection that we have. Yeah, but on the other hand, none of those instruments was played in Auschwitz by a survivor or was this and that. It's different. It's a very different experience when you go to a concert and it's a very different experience when you go to a concert that you know the history behind the instruments. Now, I can tell you very clear, the instruments that the people play in the Berlin Philharmonic I'll give or take 200 years old, maybe even more, 300, many of them. They've seen things that we can't even imagine, but we simply don't know. Um, well, thank you. Okay. Um, 
So maybe two related uh, questions. What's been the experience of survivor communities uh, in encountering these instruments? And maybe along with that question, maybe if there's a particular experience that's been illuminating or surprising to you as you've shared these instruments um, around the world. I think we'd love to know a little bit about that as well. So like I mentioned before with the survivor that I met in, uh, in Sarasota, Florida. So for him, it was a torture. For other people, it was a way of, of sharing what they went through or family went through. Or I cannot tell you and explain to you what happened there. We can think that we understand. We can think that we know. We can't understand. Um, like my wife mentioned, uh, we played. They played a concert in July in Auschwitz with Raphael Walfisch. Raphael Walfisch's mother, Anita Lasker Walfisch, even uh, spoke in the uh, German Parliament. I think it was also in the 17th anniversary five years ago. She was 16 years old, cellist, when she arrived to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And when she arrived, I'll tell you a story that Raphael just told us in the summer. Look how crazy a war can be in a place like Auschwitz-Birkenau can be. When she arrived to the camp, she had a very special pair of shoes, sandals. And when she said that she was a cellist, they told her, ah, you should go and try the orchestra. And she joined the orchestra, and this is how she was saved. Now, a few months later, her sister arrived. And the guy who admitted her sister was the same guy who admitted her. And he looks on her sister and says, I've seen these shoes before. I know these shoes. There is someone here in the camp who has the exact same shoes. And this is how they were reunited. Wow. She also joined the orchestra and saved. Wow. Now, Anita, unlike many others, like I said, she actually continued playing. She was uh, one of the founding members of the uh, British Chamber Orchestra, if I'm not mistaken, playing for many years. She's still alive, uh, 96 or 97 years old. And she actually, she is a smoke. She, cha- she smokes like a chain. Like a ch- <laughs> you, it's like literally, she wakes up, it's a cigarette by cigarette by cigarette. And someone asked her once, why? And she said, well, if the Nazis didn't kill me, the cigarettes wouldn't kill me as well. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I have not met her personally. Of course, I met her son a few times. He played with us also in Dresden and other places. It's a way to deal with it. For Listen, all the survivors, they're probably 80 years old, if not more. For them to go on talking about it, it's hard. Maybe this is another way to try and share. So we have, we have time for a final piece, if you have a final piece. Or yeah. Okay, so we have time for one final piece of music this afternoon. I would love to play uh, Joseph Ahron, Hebrew melody, for the last piece of today. And uh, another thing I want to add about Raphael and his mother, uh, they, they were invited to have... Um, um, to have interview in Auschwitz with her, and uh, that evening, if I'm not mistaken, maybe Auschwitz can uh, help me. Um, they, the shuttle just left, so they were in the camp and talking and going around, and she was showing him. And they said, "Listen, I mean, we cannot take you anywhere. I mean, 
there are no available hotels around the area. So, but but here we have kind of a guest room. That, and he said, I look at my mother. I said, Mom, what do you say? I said, Well, why not? Let's. And she actually, she such a strong character. Um, she yeah, she she slept there that evening with her son. She she spent the night, and I he think said it, it was, was the old uh, commander house that they. Uh, changed as to yeah. it's not a guest house it's kind of like they had that was basically the only place that you could in the camp yeah. that you could stay so I, I just to for you to imagine what a strong figure she is and I mean I don't know if I could do it do it but well So just personally, again, I want to thank uh, Avshalom and Seville uh, for their, their beautiful, beautiful words and music uh, this afternoon. At the outset, I remarked that these objects have this great capacity to kindle a fire uh, within all of us, and I think you've illustrated that uh, so beautifully uh, today. So I'll, I'll offer my formal words of thanks uh, in conclusion. So thanks to Avshalom Weinstein, co-founder of Violins of Hope and Seville Weinstein violinist, for their deeply inspiring and moving presentation today. I also want to thank again Matan Zamir, Deputy Counsel General for Israel and the Pacific Northwest, uh, for his moving comments and family story uh, today. We also thank our audience here, those listening uh, to recordings and on the internet. Again, I'm Rabbi Daniel Stein of Congregation B'nai Shalom in Walnut Creek. I've been your moderator for today. You've been listening to a Commonwealth Club program called Violins of Hope, A Journey of Heroism, Healing, and Humanity with Avshalom Weinstein. 
Now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 115 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.